a lot of things happening in space that can be covered from home if you have the right systems to do it. The orbital analysts are supporting the space agency from remote locations. It, it doesn't have to be behind a classified military operations center or radar. They can do the day-to-day -day job quite easily as a civil organization. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm Jason Canigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement firm. And I am here with Ralph Dinsley, who is known as Dins out there in the real world. Uh, he's a fun guy, an exciting guy, uh, good military background. I, I hear positive things about you all the time, Dins, and you've been a great supporter <laughs> of uh, the Make Space Boring events that we ran. I appreciate that a lot. And uh, you run a, a company called NORSS, N-O-R-S-S, -S, which stands for Northern Space and, and Security. Uh, you have a, a long RAF career, a Royal Air Force career. It's like 34 years and growing, which is really impressive. And I want to talk to you a bit about that because uh, a lot of the people who have talked to me before I met you said, have you talked to, to Dins? And I was like, who, <laughs> what? You know, he's like, well, he's really tied into the, the UK defense um, Force and and uh, you need to meet him. So this is cool. Um, so we've had a little bit of chatting, but this is the first time we've really sat down for a conversation. So, so thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Well, um, so let's begin a little bit with the with your military background, and then we'll move into Norse. Um, I noticed you have a, a rank of uh, a staff officer too. So does that mean I have to call you major? How does that translate? Yeah, so in, in the Royal Air Force, the rank was squadron leader. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was fortunate enough to work with uh, some of my U.S. colleagues in the U.S. Air Force uh, space roles, as was then, um, I'd always point out the fact that there was no real comparison between major and squadron leader because, well, squadron leader was similar to major, except we worked harder. Huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So um, I noticed in your in your educational background, you've got a master's degree and then you went on um, I, some years ago now got to postgraduate study in um, peace and development. What is that? That's a good question. Actually, it was uh, when I when I uh, um, did my graduate studies, I, 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 I focused on history because I've always uh, had a, an insatiable appetite for history. Um, um, and uh, in fact, one of my hobbies was learning about Native American history. Mm. Uh, really enjoyed that, and that's thanks to growing up on a, on a diet of John Wayne um, as a young man, and then being introduced to burying my heart at uh, Wounded Knee. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so, having completed my graduate degree, um, I was always looking for some other subject, but I just didn't want to do a another post grad in mm. more history or whatever. Um, and when I was OC operations at RAF Filingdales, I got to meet the local campaign for nuclear disarmament um, mm. cohort, um, who were always campaigning against Filingdales, but we were always trying to educate them about its role as, for space sustainability and space surveillance. And one of those guys was a professor at uh, the, the university, what was then called um, Leeds Metropolitan University, it's now called Leeds Beckett, um, and he ran a program uh, for peace and development. He was in fact the chairman of CND at the time. So I got talking to him and I, I was really intrigued. So the, the, the subject matter is what we in the military would have called a comprehensive approach back in the day. So it was a, an amalgamation of uh, security, um, international development and post-conflict reconstruction. So when you brought other government departments in together with the military to help provide security to a nation, etc. Um, so I was fortunate, enough to, I applied for and was fortunate enough to be awarded a Chief of the Air Staff Fellowship, which was a one year um, um, moratorium, is that the right phrase? But one year away from the Royal Air Force, but studying 
paid for by the Royal Air Force. Um, Sebastical, that's the word I was looking for. And um, um, so I was still classed as a full-time officer, but was able to be a student and uh, and to study um, peace and development. And at the end of it, I came out qualified with a... I used to like to tell people that I'm, I was one of the few military officers with a master's in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the uh, the two sort of anecdotal stories around that was before I started the Masters, I was on operations deployment uh, in the Gulf, uh, controlling aircraft over Afghanistan. Mm. So we'd spend a couple of hours on uh, console providing close air support to uh, our uh, coalition forces on the ground. Um, and then I'd go and sit in the crew room and read uh, for two hours on some of the thickest textbooks on peace that you could find. Um, and then, of course, when I started the course, my fellow students all wondered why a military officer wanted to do a course in peace. Um, and I helped to educate them, point out the fact that most military officers are, you know, peace is uh, our main aim. We, we just come at peace from a slightly different angle to other people, that's all. Right. Now, I, I'm curious what examples that uh, the, the textbooks used, and this might be too much to think back on. I don't, I don't know. It's been long enough. But uh, some examples I could think of, like Germany after World War II, there you've got occupation and reconstruction that worked out, I think, okay. It, yes, it's better yeah. than most, uh, but um, Iraq, not so great. Afghanistan, no. you know, are, are, how, what examples can you remember, if any, of, of good situations where occupation and reconstruction worked out well? I suppose a great, great example of more recent history. It was a case study that um, I participated in to do between Kosovo um, and East Timor. Mm-hmm. Although the Kosovo scenario has hasn't quite settled still yet, and some of that's related to maybe potentially the UN agenda, um, there was never any independence agenda um, tagged to that conflict. Whereas uh, East Timor uh, transitioned uh, within about a decade, just over a decade from from conflict into um, in, into peace and and independence, um, and. Um, yeah, in, obviously it happened in my lifetime. And yeah. so there was a, a wealth of, of, of information to research at that time. Hmm. Okay. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating topic. How, how do you move in and supply and get infrastructure back working and, and then let go and let these people take over again, right? Uh, after exactly. having changed their thinking a little bit, hopefully, so that they don't go out and start the same thing again. And, and in some ways, you can probably see some of the same pain right now in movements like Black Lives Matter, etc. Because there's because mm-hmm. there's no closure. Right. Well, yeah, reconstruction in the that. United States was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and and kind of yeah, botched. I think might be a good word. It was it was badly done. Um, and then you know the whole okay, hands off, everybody's free to go kind of thing. You know, we're gonna forgive everybody but i don't want to get too political <laughs> but that no, is an okay. area that, that i think we've both looked at so but, um, but well, i think the key the key takeaway is the closure piece and and, right. and whatever form that takes and and that is the problem sometimes people's grievances are not addressed and yeah. therefore it just simmers away underneath the surface for a long long time right um east timor was an agenda for independence and that closure was achieved uh, some might argue that um, Indonesia may not have wanted that independence, so there might still be some closure issues with the greater you know, Indonesian side, but for the people of East Timor, that, that closure was affected. Hmm. Okay. And, yeah, obviously the Balkans have been uh, a difficult yeah. area for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and we still see the, yeah. the continuation in Bosnia, etc., and there's still yeah. you know, the old... Um, 
uh, turbulence amongst war crime trials in The Hague and things like that. So even now, it's still ongoing because that closure hasn't been achieved. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to your RAF history. You've held many different roles, uh, and I enjoyed looking through them and going, gee, <laughs> we could talk about this, we could talk about that, uh, but, you know, including space situational awareness and that. The most current thing that you're, you're doing is something called Aerospace Battle Manager, and I, I have, like, at the empty cubby hole in my head of like what goes in there. So, uh, you know, keeping in mind security and compliance issues and that, what can you tell us about that role? I mean, what is yeah, I mean, that role was a fascinating role, which, which was effectively the name change of a branch. And in fact, it has subsequently changed. So since um, I think April last year, the aerospace battle manager has now become part of the air operations branch. Uh, and my role within that is known as air operations uh, systems. And, and uh, yeah, I, I'm no longer within the military. I, I must admit, I need to update my LinkedIn a piece. I had to, uh, I've just been so busy in my current uh, post-military career that I haven't been able to maintain, I, I did maintain um, reserve status for a, a while to try and help and whatever else. Um, but so the aerosystems, um, aerospace battle manager was what historically used to be called the fighter controller. So our... Uh, birth, for want of a better phrase, occurred during the Battle of Britain, and it was the ground control element of um, of supporting the Battle of Britain, and then beyond that. And so it's all it was all about control of the air, uh, creating a recognised air picture, and supporting, providing air support to troops on the ground, close air support, etc. Um, it had been fighter controller for quite a few decades, um, from uh, the late 30s all the way through until about I think it was about late 2008 2009 and became aerospace battle manager because it was more than just controlling aircraft uh, and when i joined i was selected on the system side of things so i was a surveillance specialist so predominantly surveillance of the air um in the 1960s when uh, RAF Finingdale's ballistic missile early warning site was was built um because radars sat within the fighter control branch um it, it became very much a a position of the fighter controllers to man our air filing deals. Um, and that's how I got into the space business, so to say, because in uh, 1999, on a whim to to leave the Royal Air Force, I had uh, two years left in my uh, at my current employment. Um, and so I decided that I wanted to go somewhere where it'd be a bit quieter so I could get some more qualifications and, and then transition from the RAF. Uh, I select, was selected for a posting to filing deals. And... Um, and then it took me a subsequent 17 years to extract myself from full-time RAF employment because it was that fascinating. Um, and like I said, last year, um, 18 months or so ago, they changed it to air operations branch. Um, my field would be classed as systems. And within that, you'd have air surveillance and you would have uh, space. And the space roles sit firmly within that. But okay. just, just because I work space, I still specialized on air. And that meant my last two operational tours in the Gulf were close air support to uh, the guys on the ground, both in 2012 and, and 2015. Mm -hmm. So what kind of systems and assets do you have? I put my Russian spy hat on for this question. <laughs> you know, I, you've got satellites for observation, obviously. Uh, what, what else have you got? Well, we, we rely very heavily on um, uh, our U.S. allies for, for a lot of system support, certainly when we're deployed. For the U.K., we have ground-based radars supporting the air picture. Um, there's always been a network of radars around the U.K. Um, for control of the air, for air policing. And, and um, I don't know if it gets the same um, 
publicity in the US, but there are regular occurrences of Russian aircraft. Almost said, almost said Soviet then, showing my background. Um, Russian aircraft flying into the airspace, because even though it's international waters, we, there's still a certain amount of uh, air policing that needs to, that is required. And, and they generally come in without um, a, a secondary radar signal, without IFF, as we'd call it. And therefore, um, they are, um, blind to civilian radar systems because they rely on oh. the secondary surveillance radar the code that's transmitted by aircraft so the air defense radars are, are, are central to for the sustainability of airspace as the the military radars like finding are essential for the sustainability of space hmm. we have we have obviously Finningdale still as well. So we are part of this, still part of the US space surveillance network and the ballistic missile early warning system mm -hmm. with RAF Finningdale. Okay. Is, uh, is missile defeat and defense under the RAF or is it under another body? We don't actually have a missile defense segment per se. It fits very much within the different roles. So there's a, a thing called GBAD, ground-based air defense, um, which will incorporate uh, missile defense in that scenario for for localized defense. Um, the UK has missile early warning with filing mm -hmm. deals, but we haven't actually had active uh, missile defense since 1945. And we oh. actually had a, a lot of people don't realize this, but back in the end of the second world war, we strung together um, three or four of our chain home radars on the Southeast coast to provide a rudimentary warning of the V2 rocket launches against um, the UK and to be able to direct our bombers to the launch sites. So to pick up them, pick them up as soon as they were launched and then take them out. Huh. Well, when okay. it comes to advanced warning, it's very much relying on the US huh. uh, missile warning system. So being part of that integrated um, air and missile defense or missile defense system helps us to provide this, the missile warning. Well, I bet you and I could have a long and detailed conversation about the Battle of Britain and uh, the way the radar was used in the organization of the airfields and getting the planes yes. to the right spots together, uh, you know, and the power of reserves, right, having something left to, to put somewhere else. So but one of the very first examples of network-centric uh, operations. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So you, I, I'm beginning to get a clearer feel and picture for why you developed the company that you did. But let's talk about North. So Northern Space and Security Limited. What would you describe as the main reason for, for why you established this company? Well, the, um, the personal reason was as a retirement project to top up my military pension, to keep my mind active and to keep my interest in all things at space on a part-time level. Hmm. But in two and a half, almost three, well, in three years, uh, two and a half years since retiring from the Air Force, three years since the company was formed, I've um, it's 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 gone orbital, shall we say, to say the very least. Just getting the right message out about sustainability of space is the key uh, driver for myself and my partners in Norse um, to ensure that uh, informed decisions are, are made on the future of how we utilize space. I'd give you an, an umbrella caveat. Um, it, that information has often sat behind the military firewall. Um, so therefore, it's not, not as open or um, understood as it should be. And a lot of people still go, well, that's all classified stuff. Well, it's not. And therefore, uh, being able to support, whether it's academic, government, or even military development on understanding what's going on in space uh, has really sort of driven us to, to, to establish the company and actually grow it the way we have done. Okay. 
And so if we can get a little more granular, what kind of problems do you solve and for, for who? So um, one of the, the main elements of the, the company, um, we were fortunate enough to be awarded a contract by uh, the UK Space Agency last November to provide orbital analysts to the UK, or orbital analyst support to the UK Space Agency. So we provide analysts supporting the day-to-day um, space surveillance and tracking roles and space situation awareness roles, both the UK Space Agency and to some point in the UK Space Operations Centre, the military centre as well. Um, so it began with our senior orbital analysts providing that initial support for about 56 hours a week and we've now employed two junior analysts as well, Monday to Friday, adding that additional requirement. And it surprised me actually having been in this business for so long, both on the military side and now subsequent commercially, how busy they are and how busy the contract keeps them, which is great news. And, and over coming years, we'll expand that number. Um, and through that, it's helped us drive our own internal development phase. Um, the whole piece about space situation awareness is it's essential. Mm-hmm. I would argue that we don't actually have it right now. Um, there are some points have it and some people have more information than others, but it's essential. It's not, it's not cheap to do. It's expensive, but more importantly, it relies on experience. Mm. Um, and so, uh, one of our aims is to, is to develop that experience. So both in, internally, both for the uh, orbital analyst contract with the space agency, but internally is we, we're, we're, we're driving a very, uh, fast program to grow our own expertise to support space situation awareness. Um, we, we've only just recently, just before the pandemics, um, created the Norse Orbital Anal- Analyst Hive, or NOAA, um, which um, will provide our own operational input. Before that, it was mostly consultancy, subject matter expertise to support academic and government programs, whether military or, uh, or, or civil. And now we're venturing into creating our own footprint um, so that we can actually support broader commercial requirements and in individual companies there's a lot of small companies out there that are building their own space capability don't necessarily have the, the broader understanding of operations in space and we can add that value to it all right how, how did that journey go a lot of folks uh, found a, a company think they just stick out their shingle and the customers are going to come running towards them uh, but <laughs> there's, there's a bunch of steps to it how did it go for you to go from zero to one so it was surprisingly a lot easier than I expected. <clears throat> um, only the, I think because I had such a broad network before I left the service, and and a lot of that was I, uh, not only the other network, but I had the the um, reputation, mm-hmm. um, and and they are two key elements in you know, starting any business. If you don't have that network, uh, you you know, you're, you're swimming against the the, the stream to say the least. Um, I'd say that some of the biggest challenges have been up against bigger companies because of course, especially when you start as a company of one, you, um, yeah, you, you can't spread yourself. You can't spread yourself too much, but you need to spread yourself as much as possible. And, and, you know, that's just not physically or mentally possible at times. Uh, so that, that piece is tough. And of course, but as you expand the company, you know, the company is based on your reputation. So you've got to select the, and, and meet and work with the right people and bring in on a partner like Sean Goldsborough from the, um, uh, on the orbital analyst side, you know, added to that reputational standing rather than anything else. And he had a, an outstanding um, technical and operational um, reputation to go with 
with everything else as well. So these these things grew, and then uh, our third partner Adam White came in as well, and he had a great commercial um, and government background as well. So uh, so it just it, you know it just went from musketeer side thing really from the from the broad network of one to to three. Um, but the biggest challenge has always been going up against the primes because they may not have the expertise, but they have the resource, um, and and that has has always been an interesting challenge. Hmm. Has there been any struggle to stay on a, like a clear scope path of this is who we are, these are our values, these are the problems that we solve? Or have you found yourself getting dragged, you know, into other areas? Or hey, Dins, would you come and look at this? Um. I think the the space situation awareness umbrella is so big that it actually encompasses an awful lot of of, of subjects and it touches a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And it was something that I drew um, as a wire diagram when in the military to show people about the significance of SSA, the piece that everybody ignores because you can't walk up and touch it. And you had all these space force enhancement capabilities like SATCOM and missile warning and um, uh, PNT, uh, you know, GNSS and all that sort of stuff that, that, that everybody felt and understood, even if they only understood it as a timing signal. But the what's going on was the piece they didn't, and the fact that SSA touched launch, it touched uh, reentry, and, and you know from from birth to cradle to grave, as we'd say, it touched everything to do with space operations. So there, there, there's hardly ever a subject we don't touch. Um, but you're absolutely right. Staying on stream is very important. Um, and then being able to reach out and provide the support that others need, because not everybody needs the big umbrella support and being able to touch those bespoke points is that's our future aim is to, is to you know, reach out to the small companies and, uh, individually solve their problems rather than giving them a blanket resolution, so to speak. Okay, so that's that's the more narrow focus of where you think you could provide yes. the most value. Okay, compared to a prime contractor. Okay, this next bit here, I want to make sure everybody understands it. So let's begin with a definition here. Of what is military dominance coverage? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so uh, the military have, for want of a better phrase, owned space since the outset. I mean, yes, the U.S. created NASA. To, to, to show the, um, the, the political, to, to, to support the political agenda uh, at the time, to show the civil focus, but actually the military focus being far greater. The military initially realized the benefits that space can provide to um, their, their force enhancement and, and, and have gone out there and actually um, dominated both the use of space, but almost inadvertently taken over the understanding of what's happening in space because because of the need to support the missile warning mission uh, they developed the space surveillance network they developed the ballistic missile early warning system which provides information on on um, incoming missiles but there's 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 nothing that uh, discriminates between an incoming missile and a re-entering satellite so early on they realized that you need to know where the satellites were so you didn't create any false alarms so almost inadvertently, they've, 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 they've taken over the, the control of space for, I'll use that phrase very loosely, but they've taken over that domain um, to be, they are the ones that, that command what's going into, coming out of and happening in there, or they're at least observing that. Um, and considering the, the size of the programs for, for ballistic missile early warning, the, the assets that are required, um, they've, they've dominated that um, 
space management agenda or the uh, the observation of space management agenda okay but also done it surprisingly with this firewall and uh, one of the one of the I, I hate to use the phrase positives when it comes to covid but one of the one of the uh, messages that's come very clear from this event is there's a lot of things happening a lot of things happening in space that um can be covered from home if you have the right systems to do it you know uh, the the Orbital analysts are supporting the space agency from remote locations. It, it doesn't have to be behind a classified military operations center or radar. They can do the day-to-day -day job um, quite easily um, as a civil organization. So, so that one of the takeaways for me is the fact that we need to open up the understanding of what's happening in space. Um, and that needs to be put into for the political spectrum put into the hands of, of governments um, space agencies for one of a better phrase the military have dominated space tracking for 60 years um, we're in a position where where nothing happens uh, if it does happen it happens glacially because of a, a un involvement uh, international um, um, diplomacy for one of a better phrase involved in there whatever and, and things are happening in space quite rapidly so we need to be able to um, deal with it on a more open and more rapid basis. Military will always have their requirements, but actually, like international um, civil aviation, we need to have, for one of a better phrase, an international space authority to oversee um, future sustainability of space. Yeah. So that really led into the answer to this question. Now that we know what military dominance coverage is of the orbital environment, this question here, is it still fit for purpose? You're saying, no, it's not fast enough. The feedback loops are not fast enough. It's not nimble enough. And we need to get other bodies, it's not even just it. regular people in there uh, to yes. gather information. Very much so. Is there a piece of the puzzle or the system that's missing or could be quickly and vastly improved upon that you see? I would, I would say the piece of the puzzle is and, and, and it won't be quick and, and you know, because you either got to build them or, or reappropriate them is the piece of the puzzle is opening up the data of objects in low earth orbit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that needs to be done quickly because we need to, there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there at the moment. I, I, I personally believe there's a lot of myths about the, the, the people use the, the phrase, the threat of space debris. Well, in my view, it's not a threat. Threat implies intent. The debris just has no intent. It's a, an object that is just falling. Um, but we don't know the full um, extent of what that problem is. And there's a lot of speculation through simulation and modeling. Well, let's open up those gates and actually track that properly and openly and actually then make informed decisions on what we need to do for the future to support that, whether it's collecting and reducing that debris or probably more, more significantly just manage what we put into space more cleverly. Okay. And for those watching or listening, there's kind of two approaches to this uh, space traffic management problem. One is you can lock it off under a kind of uh, US FAA. We tell you what to do. We, we control all the data and we dole it out as you need it. And we decide that. Or the other option, um, which Din's here, uh, Dr. Christopher Newman, the space lawyer, uh, Marie Bajaj, Dr. Marie Bajaj, and a number of other folks that I know and completely agree with, um, is more of an open source data pot where everybody puts data into it and anybody can get that data out of it. And then you come to your conclusion 
of, uh, okay, I need to move my satellite over here out of the way yeah. because of what I'm seeing. And I find that far better and far less likely to lead to international conflict and uh, cause problems. So uh, I like where that's going. Hey, this is Jason Canigan from Cold Star Tech. Thanks for listening in. I'm going to quickly interrupt the interview to talk about a new course I am offering for space startup founders. If you're a space startup founder and eventually you're looking at getting invested in, getting some of that good old venture capital pouring into the system, uh, then you're going to need this because I have done tons of one-on-one calls with space founders and discovered several consistent things that are just plain missing from their businesses. And uh, these things are so important that every time a VC looks at your pitch, they're going to say, nope, no thanks, bye-bye. And so if you want to avoid that problem from happening and actually get to the promised land of being funded, then sign up. All you have to do is go to this address and drop in your email and sign up for it. It's coldstartech.com SBM. That is for info about the course and the first part of it uh, will be given to you as it comes out. So go check that out. Do it now before you forget <laughs> if you're a space founder. And now let's get back to the interview. I'm curious, you've got this background for those who are listening and can't see of this beautiful castle here. Is, that, is there any significance to that or is that just a pretty picture? That is, um, yeah, I, I do tell people that that is, um, we did a bit of extension work on the house last year, but no, the Annick Castle. So, our, I mean, our main office is on the outskirts of Annick, a small market market town about 30 miles north of Newcastle in the northeast of England, hence the nor- northern part of our moniker. Um, and Annick Castle is the um, not only the home of the Duke of Northumberland, but also, um, you know, centre point to Northumberland. It's a county of castles and conflict of the past and, and, and untouched beaches, particularly at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it's just a place of natural beauty. So it's a nice backdrop. I, I often have the um, Newcastle Bridge, the Tyne Bridge in the background of my uh, every, any uh, webinars I get involved in. And that's because I cross that a lot, particularly heading north when I'm coming home. And it, it always reminds me that I'm coming home. Very cool. Um, let's talk about the space law games, which is something that you have helped to prompt into being along with some other folks. I've really enjoyed this idea. Uh, I see when I talked to Chris Newman, he was like, oh no, we can't talk about it yet, but I've seen you out there talking about it. So I'm going to pump you for information here. (laughs) I know about the concept, but let's explain that for folks who are listening or watching and haven't heard of it before. What, what are the space law games? So the space law games in a nutshell are the fusing of military grade wargaming and legal grade moot courting. So effectively a, a law war game um, to explore current capabilities uh, and legal um, scenarios around space operations um, to highlight the deltas, uh, the deficiencies that are in the current system that we really need to close, the gaps we need to close before we can actually start talking about having an effective space traffic management um, way forward no matter what level whether that's a light touch traffic management or even a, a, a restricted traffic management you know until we know more of what's going on there so by running complex scenarios the, the wargaming side of things we're able to extract the data points the important significant data points in a debris generating event in space to then take that into the law courts to go through what would potentially happen if somebody wanted to apportion blame to an instant in space um, because actually we, we can't enact any tight rules on space operations unless we actually have a means to be able to uh, apportion blame or to, for want of a better phrase, to police the actions that are occurring in space. 
Right. I, I love this idea. As soon as I heard it, uh, I was like, wow. And I read a couple things uh, that, that uh, Dr. Newman sent me. Uh, and I went, well, you know what? I've never really thought about this before, that, that nobody is sure whether we have the, the data or the oomph to be able to ascribe responsibility to some specific actor or nation state or whatever in space if two satellites crash into each other. We don't know yet. Can we say it's the fault of party A or party B or something else, right? And this, yeah. this space law games is going to help us uh, determine whether that is possible or not. And what if, this is fascinating to me, what if we come to the conclusion that no, we can't? What I know, then? well, exactly. So, so do, do we stop doing space? We're not going to stop doing space, but what can we do uh, to make it more, uh, you know, or less risky? I was going to say uh, safer, but, but, but certainly less risky. Um, but... but and, 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 the, and the problem we have is the fact that the ultimate um, event that we're trying to ensure never happens is that um, unsus unsustainable space operations, is that Kessler effect type thing. So, hmm. you know, it's something that's, that's I, I, I very loosely will say, a, a very low probability of happening, yes. hopefully, <laughs> but actually catastrophic if it did happen. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Uh, this is a compounding spiraling out of control series of uh, impacts where uh, a satellite crashes into another satellite and pieces of it fly off and hit other things and those yeah. crash into other things and you get this uh, debris field in orbit that doesn't allow us to launch for many years because there's stuff in the way um yeah, I talked to a former space development agency director about it. He said, like you, you know, it's, it's, he's not too afraid of it. But as you say, if it does happen, we're, we're all screwed. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's a good idea to uh, prepare for the worst and hope for the best, right? They yes, the best in very much situation. Done. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I, it kind of freaked me out when I first heard about it. And the more the time has gone on, I'm like, all right, good. Well, you know what? People take this seriously to some degree. And, and so if we do, it's unlikely to happen. So... Um, space law games. Let's, let's finish yeah. that topic up. Uh, it, it's it's ongoing. Folks are meeting and doing things right now. Uh, it, are you looking for more participants, or have you kind of got the group that you you need? I'd say right now we have the initial group. I mean, one of the um, um, areas we really need more participation from is the regulators. But mm -hmm. you can imagine, mm -hmm. being government workers, they're often a bit wary about supporting these sort of things. We, mm -hmm. We're getting some good support from the UK Space Agency, uh, the, the German. Space Agency DLR are, are participating. We're hoping for a, a couple of other nations because we don't we don't want it to be a purely UK based scenario. We're hoping to get Israel, the Indians involved. Um, Professor Newman's talking with uh, Diane Howard because uh, we obviously want US involvement because you are the, are the major players. But so the the we're we're preparing the first scenario, the first complex game. Um, I, in an ideal world, that would have been a face-to-face -face event because that generates such a rich debate. Uh, unfortunately, we're looking like we're probably going to have to host it online this year because of the events that have occurred. <clears throat> but that will occur sometime between um, middle of July and the middle of August. And one of the reasons it needs to occur in that window is if we leave it too much later, we'll have to put it off for a year. But more importantly, we're hoping to provide some support to the Amos conference um, to teach one of their um, afternoon classes on the Tuesday about the space law games and about the apportion of fault, whatever. So, yeah, so we're running a geo scenario this summer and that will be um, the reason we chose Geo is because right now there is a 
um, wealth of data in companies such as Exoanalytic Solutions on objects in geo. It's more open. It's effectively low-hanging fruit. We know that the um, the Leo scenario will be a lot more difficult to win. Hmm. Okay. And yeah, from that we'll have we'll have the moot court itself in January. So we're hoping by then things will be clearer and we'll actually people will be able to travel and join us on that one. Awesome. And I had Clint Clark from Exoanalytic on the show. Uh, that episode is up for anybody who wants to go see that. That's a good one to watch. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's, um, I, I created a space situational awareness playlist for the show on uh, on YouTube recently. And that got in there. So then this one will as well. This one will will end up there. I didn't know it would, but now I do. So <laughs> excellent. <laughs> um, so this this kind of tags on to a question that we addressed earlier, but I, I really do want to dig into it. So you're you're this well-known figure in the UK defense sector. Do you find yourself getting pulled into different kinds of discussions? Uh, you know, and maybe some that you wouldn't expect that you would get pulled into. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. Um, it's been a humbling experience since I left the military. Um, other people have ref reflected what you said earlier about people saying, "You must have you met Dins yet? You must meet Dins," and and that happens so often across multiple different sectors. So uh, I, di I didn't realize. I always thought myself as a quiet, quiet, shy person, so I didn't realize how far my reaches went. But uh, yeah, there's, there's always occasions, particularly on on the academic side, um, to to help support development of some heavily uh, academic or technical problems but they just need that little bit of support on that um, and uh, and on the educational side as well and and that's something I enjoy because people have forgotten people think about looking at the stars or they think about the eco earth earth ecology but they don't think about the, actually the environment of near-earth orbits and and what happens up there so I get pulled into a lot of discussions uh, supporting the educational piece and this next question, I think, is our last one. Um, and, it, and it ties on to what you were saying about, gee, I, I want more uh, regulators involved in the space law games. And that. Um, I like dialogue and seeing participation in that. And it's fun. And with COVID, there's been all these Zoom meetings. And you go out there and you see these folks and that. Um, and in my opinion, there's often no next action step missing uh there'll be some regulators missing there'll be some actors missing from the discussion in that and uh I, it makes me want to pull out the rest of the hair that i've got left because i'm like great we met we talked now where does this go who uses it why you know don't we get those other folks involved and you've pointed out well in some cases they may not actually want to uh be publicly you know having a statement put out there or something and then you know oh, people build things onto that so how do you think these dialogues could be made more effective? It needs somebody or something to take the leadership. Mm -hmm. um, I think historically, what's uh, and certainly in recent years, uh, talking about the dialogues, the SSA dialogue has been going on for at least a decade, if not a lot longer. Certainly, you know, you see a generation of talk about debris because of the Iridium Cosmos, and it goes quiet for a bit, and then it starts emerging again. And the fact that I think that commercial space has started doing more it's, it's probably giving it a greater impetus so it needs a, a national organization to take the lead hmm. We're, we've been waiting for the u.s to do so and unfortunately it's mired at the moment in should it sit with the fcc or department of commerce or whatever and, and you know it's become a political agenda um well i don't think um we can wait 
for that political agenda to, to sort of play out. So a nation and, and I would I would you know my call is to the UK. You know, you have an opportunity here to take the lead. You know, they do some good things with their space regulation when it comes to licensing operators. Well why don't we use some of our sovereign territory to become a leader in space situation awareness and space traffic management to help add to fill some of those gaps and then add a legitimate call to actually do some more work to support it. Um, and, and, and that has got to be the big step forward. And it's got to be brought out from the military shell and put into the, the civil mm-hmm. leadership shell um, away from the UN because it, it needs that operational access first and foremost. And that's not what's happening. There's a lot of talk diplomatically. There's a lot of talk militarily, a lot of talk about the inevitability of warfare in space. And I shudder every time I hear that. But, you know, there is no action. And I think you know, if a nation actually takes the action to start civilianizing its space surveillance management um it can actually do some add some good to to the global debate all right i like this idea a lot uh and and it points out the value of experience and having a memory uh where you've seen things come up and then fizzle and go away and then re-spark again i've been pleased to see space situational awareness get uh a really good look you know, and an interest uh, in the last year, right? Uh, you know, two years ago it was that's eh, okay, you know, but but recently it's been a, a hot topic, uh, and yet, yeah, it could fade back into obscurity again uh, for a while until something probably horrible happens. You know, or unexpected, well, exactly, unexpected. we've had so many. Uh, we've had so many positives recently, you know, the, the uh, SpaceX launch, the, the crew to uh, the ISS and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and just watching uh, the SpaceX launches when the uh, rocket bodies come back down, there's been lots of positives. And I, and I hope it's the positives that will steer the uh, understanding and development rather than having to react to another Iridium cosmos. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, I love operational excellence. So as you say, when you see the, uh, a 20-minute launch. The thing goes from the pad up into orbit. It is releasing satellites within 20 minutes, and then uh, that stage is coming back down and landing yeah. nicely. It's it's fun to watch. It really is. Uh, and I, I like it a lot. So, um, Vince, where can people reach out to connect with you? Is it best to go through LinkedIn or through the Norse website? Either or, I keep everything covered. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd say sometimes people connect through the website and it goes to my spam, mm. but I would say I, I check that on a daily basis. So there's, it's highly unlikely that I'll ignore it. So yeah, either the, my LinkedIn link or the website, um, very easy to get hold. Awesome. My guest today has been Ralph Dinsley, aka Dins. <laughs> He's the founder and executive director of Northern Space and Security, Norse and uh, had a long RAF career, three decades plus. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio only uh, side of things. 
the YouTube channel allows me to have playlists. And so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening.